Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. If you'd get your Bibles out, open them up to Revelation chapter 12. If you were in the adult Bible class this morning, your Bible was maybe already marked at Revelation chapter 12, but we will begin there once again in just a few moments. Revelation, the 12th chapter. Let's all be following along in the Word of God. As you're turning there, I will just say how great it is to see everybody this Lord's Day morning. You know, despite the wintry mix that we did get overnight, it does seem as if uh, most of our folks are able to be here uh, this morning and be able to be here without too much trouble, and we're thankful for that. And I'm glad that you're here. I'm encouraged by your presence and by uh, our time together, and I hope that as we talk about things from the Word of God today, I hope that you'll be encouraged and benefited as well. Let's read together in Revelation chapter 12. This is verse number 10. In Revelation chapter 12 and in verse 10, there the Bible says, Revelation 12 and in verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. What does Satan do all week? Have you ever thought about that? What's the devil doing all week long? You know, tomorrow morning you're going to get up and you're going to go to work, but Satan is also going to go to work. What's he going to be doing? Well, the Bible, of course, doesn't tell us everything about the devil and all of the activity of the devil. There, of course, are lots of questions that we have about, about the origins of the devil, and we'd like to know more about that. We don't know everything about the extent of power that the devil has. We'd like to know more about that. But the Bible does tell us everything that we need to know, like how the devil is the father of lies, and how he is the great deceiver, how he is a murderer from the beginning, and how the devil is so intent on destroying the souls of men and women that he even will appear to people as an angel of light, Paul says. But you want to know what the devil really spends a lot of his time doing? Revelation 12 verse 10 just told us. He makes accusations. He stands before God and accuses us. We get glimpses of that in the opening chapters of the book of Job. Paul says something about that in Romans the 8th chapter. How Satan will accuse us because we are in the love of God. Satan stands before God and he hurls accusations about you and accusations about me. Look, God, looky there. He can't be one of your children. Oh, look over here at this lady. She, she certainly can't be one of yours. The devil makes those kinds of accusations regularly about the people of God. But you know, sometimes it's not just God who hears the devil's accusations. Sometimes we hear those accusations as well. He points the finger at us and He whispers those accusations in our ear in an attempt to discourage us and in an attempt to undermine our faith. And so as a result, He will get you to ask questions about things like your baptism. Hey, did you really know what you were doing when you were baptized? Did you really repent when you obeyed the gospel? The devil will cause you and he will impugn your spiritual growth, your spiritual progress. Why aren't you doing more? Can't you be doing more? You're so pathetic. Look at him over there. Why can't you be more like him? The devil as well will draw attention to your weaknesses and your shortcomings. 
How can a Christian still have those problems and those temptations? How can you even call yourself a Christian if you're still struggling with that? Those accusations, they have a hissing sound to them because it is the devil's attempt to take our eyes off of Jesus and focus our minds instead on ourselves, on our own failures. The devil is assaulting us with those accusations. And when those seeds of discouragement are planted in our minds and planted in our hearts, it oftentimes ends up yielding a bitter harvest of sadness and despair, and it ends up crippling and sometimes even destroying people's walk with God. The devil is all about the business of assaulting the people of God, whether that be collectively, as we talked about last Sunday morning, Satan's assault on the church. But many times as well, the devil's doing that assaulting individually. And this morning, that's exactly what I want to explore for just a few moments. I want us to think about his work and the accusations that he makes against you and me day and night, John says. If ever we are going to have confidence and assurance and security in our walk with the Lord, the kind of confidence that God wants His people to have, then we'll need to be ready to defend ourselves whenever the enemy levels his charges against us. Now, before we start looking at those things, I need to begin by issuing a very important disclaimer. And I need you to just lock in on this right up front. Would you get 2 Corinthians 13 with me, please? In 2 Corinthians 13, if you don't get dialed in on this point right here at the beginning, then you're liable to end up disagreeing with pretty much the whole rest of this lesson. You're going to have a lot of yeah buts throughout this lesson, so let's just go ahead and take care of this right now. In 2 Corinthians 13, listen to what Paul says here. In 2 Corinthians 13, I'm looking in verse 5. In 2 Corinthians 13 and in verse 5, Paul says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet that test. I want you to listen to me very carefully. I am not saying this morning that we should not examine ourselves. We should. We must. That is a command of Scripture. That is a vitally important part of being a Christian. That is, we take inventory of where we are in our walk with the Lord. And whenever we find that there are some some holes, that there are some weak spots, that there are some deficiencies in our Christianity, we need to take care of that. We need to get on that. We need to get get that fixed. Self-examination is critical and it is crucial. But I want you to listen to me very carefully To obsess about self-examination? To just be constantly hyper-fixated on self? That is a mistake. The devil is very clever at taking good things like self-examination and twisting them and making them into a bad thing where we end up fixating and overanalyzing every little thing in our lives. And we don't want to do that. We want to examine ourselves regularly. I think that's the tone of 2 Corinthians 13.5. But we're not going to do that to the point of obsession where Satan is able to fill our minds so easily with those lies and the uncertainties that cripples and maybe even destroys our Christianity. We're not going to do that. And so this morning, let me then, with, with that thought firmly fixed in your mind, 
Let's shine a spotlight on three of those accusations that the devil makes to try and undermine our faith. And as a bonus at the end, I'm going to give you what is our surefire, absolute defense against all of Satan's accusations and all of Satan's assaults. Let's think for a few moments about the things that our accuser says to us and about us, and that begins by taking us on a trip to Never Never Land. This is when the devil says things to us like, if you were a real Christian, then you would never. If you were a real Christian, there are certain things that you would never think or you would never do. And in fact, the fact that you do think those things and you do do those things, well, well, that's just proof that you are pathetic and you are weak and you are sorry as a Christian. And so, for example... If you were a real Christian, you would never, you would never ever have doubts about your faith. I mean, what kind of Christian would ever have questions about things like like the inspiration of the Bible? What person would ever explore and try to understand that better? I mean, just accept it for what it is. Or what kind of Christian would ever be unsure about the creation account being a literal six days? Come on! Who would ever have doubts about that? Or what kind of Christian would ever wonder about things like the resurrection of Jesus and go looking for more proofs and evidences for that? You don't need to have doubts about that. How dare you have doubts? In fact, if you've got doubts about your Christianity, then then that really does raise some real questions about whether you're even a Christian at all. Genuine believers. The devil wants us to know genuine believers, they don't ever have doubts about matters of faith. Can I ask you, Does that work biblically? It does not. Look with me in Matthew the 11th chapter. In Matthew the 11th chapter, this is John the Baptist. This is that great man, that great preacher, who pointed at Jesus one day and he said, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the guy who was involved in preparing the way for the Messiah. Yet here in a dark and difficult time in John's life, Matthew 11, verses 2 and 3, John ends up sending some disciples to ask the question, Hey, Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Or or do we need to be looking for somebody else? And in verses 4, 5, and 6 of Matthew chapter 11, Jesus sends word back to John. Jesus actually quotes from Isaiah the 61st chapter. And Jesus says, John, I am indeed the Messiah that you've been looking for. What I want you to notice when you look at those verses is that Jesus does not rebuke John for having doubts. Jesus does not say, now John, I tell you, you tell John that I can't believe that he would ever have such a question about me. What kind of guy would have doubts about the Lord? He's not a real believer. No. In the book of Jude, please, look in the tiny book of Jude right before Revelation. In the book of Jude, notice how Jude does not say that, hey, if people have doubts, if Christians have doubts, what you need to do with those folks is you need to just throw them out. Just get rid of those folks. Those folks are a detriment to the cause of Christ. No, in Jude chapter 1, notice in verse 22, he says on those who have doubt, we need to have mercy. You stop and think about it. If we get to thinking and defining Christianity as just always being 100% certain about everything all of the time, then where does that put walking by faith? 
How's that going to work if we just have 100% confidence in everything all of the time? Faith, faith assumes that there's going to be things from time to time we're going to have to work through. We're going to have to figure out. We're going to have to develop some convictions about. Christianity calls upon us to investigate some things, to gather and collect some evidence, to arrive at a conclusion so that we can build strong faith. But that does mean that along the way and along that journey, yeah, yeah, we're going to encounter some things that are doubtful from time to time. You think in the Bible, Gideon in the book of Judges, Gideon doubted God's word about leading the people to victory. Abraham and Sarah, they both doubted the promises of God about giving them a son. Thomas, very famously, in fact, not just Thomas, but all of the apostles, they doubted the resurrection. And you and I, you and I will be no different. As we face doubts from time to time, and as we work our way through them, we're not going to be content to just kind of settle in doubt. No, we're going to work through those things. But don't let the devil come along and convince you that, oh, you're just a horrible, you're an awful person, you're a terrible Christian because real Christians never have doubt. And by that same token, don't let the devil guilt you with his accusations of, oh, real Christians, real Christians never, ever struggle with sin. Now you call yourself a Christian? Well, how come you're not past this temptation yet? You keep falling into that sin. You keep giving in to that temptation. I I think that's pretty good evidence that you never really put on the new man or the new woman in Christ. See how that accusation, we we hear that, and man, that just bothers us. It eats away at us. Maybe that's because, maybe it's because there is some measure of truth there. You know, we do want to grow out of old habits. We do want to get stronger in the Lord. We do want to put sin firmly in the rearview mirror of our lives. But does that mean that in order for me to be a real Christian, that I have to master every single temptation and I can never ever struggle with sin again? Look in Galatians 2 with me. In Galatians chapter 2, if this particular accusation is true, then I guess that means that the apostle Peter wasn't much of a Christian. In Galatians chapter 2, it seems as if Peter struggled with sin. In fact, this seems to be maybe something that was a recurring problem with Peter. In Galatians chapter 2, look in verse 11. In Galatians 2 and in verse 11, Paul says that when Cephas, that's Peter, when he came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, But when they came, the Jews, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. That was a huge failure on Peter's part. Yet I want you to notice how Paul does not try to throw Peter out of the church. We just need to get rid of this guy. He's not really one of us. Paul does not accuse Peter of not being a real Christian. You know what, Peter? You need to to rethink whether you were really saved in the first place. No. In fact, read Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians. That entire church was plagued with all kinds of sinful attitudes and sinful behaviors and not once does Paul try to, to recant or renege on the salvation of those brethren. Paul not once tells them that, oh, 
You're not really brothers and sisters in Christ. You all aren't real Christians. No. Paul recognized that those were, those were people. People who had been saved, but they were still people nonetheless. And that meant that the struggle with sin and temptation would continue to be an ever-present reality in their lives, just the same as it will be in yours and mine lives. Listen to the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, look in verse 1. In Hebrews 12 and verse 1, there is a, a metaphor that is used here that is very helpful for us as we think about our Christian walk. In Hebrews 12 and in verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Notice there, it's a race. It is a marathon. And the Bible is not shy to say that, yeah, in that race, in that marathon, we can get weary from time to time. And sin, that's described there in verse 1, sin can easily trip us up from time to time. But that does not mean that we are just an utter and abject failure. That does not mean that God wants to strip us of our Christianity and no, you can't be in my family anymore. No. God knew that the race is long. And God knew that there would be many hurdles along the way. Which is why He has gone out of His way to provide us with tools and resources to help us in that race. He's given us the Bible. He's given us the church. He's given us the avenue of prayer to speak to Him. And so many other blessings, things that are designed to help us in that struggle so that we can repent and we can overcome and we can move forward as one of His children. Don't let the devil ever convince you otherwise. Because this business of real Christians never have any doubt or real Christians never struggle with sin, that is nothing more than a false accusation. Just like this second accusation that Satan is so prone to make. And that is when the Satan says, Whoa! Look how bad your circumstances are. Look at how awful and terrible your present circumstances in life are. I tell you, that must mean that God doesn't love you very much. All this bad stuff happening in your life, I don't think the Lord really loves you. You know, we live today in a snapshot society where you can get just immediate results and immediate data and immediate information just right there in the split second, right there in a moment. You know, what's the temperature right now? I'll just pull out my phone and look at the weather app and oh, I can tell you exactly what the temperature is right here at this moment. Or what's the score of the ball game? I just pull up ESPN.com and I can tell you the score right now. How much money is in my checking account? Hey, I can pull that up and hey, I can tell you exactly what's in my account right now this very minute. I can do all those things and I can answer those questions immediately. We get information about what's happening at this moment within a moment's notice. But you know, that information about right now, it's exactly that. It's about right now. Knowing the temperature at this present moment, that doesn't tell you what the temperature is going to be this afternoon. In fact... This is Kentucky. On any given day, you may need your snow shovel and a rain jacket and your sandals all in the same day. Looking at the score on your screen right now, that doesn't tell you who's going to win the game. 
In fact, in an NBA basketball game, the score in the third quarter is absolutely useless. It doesn't matter what the score is until it gets to like the last couple of minutes. And looking at your bank account right now and seeing how much money is in there right now at this present moment, that, that doesn't tell you whether you're going to be able to retire in the next 30 years. In the same way, you can take a snapshot of your situation in life right now and you can end up making a judgment about God's love for you. And you know what? That's exactly what the devil wants people to do. Hey, look at all this bad stuff that's happening in your life right now. You know, God protects real Christians. And from the state of affairs going on in your life, it seems like God isn't really protecting you. God isn't really doing much for you. That medical diagnosis that you recently got, that financial strain that you are experiencing, that turbulence and heartache that's going on within your family, eh. God wouldn't let that happen to people who He really loves. You're going to let the devil say those things and whisper that kind of nonsense in your ear? You're going to let the devil make those accusations and then you buy into it? If you do, then you'll end up making the exact same mistake that Asaph made. Would you look in Psalm 73, please? In the 73rd Psalm, a guy by the name of Asaph made this mistake of taking a, a quick snapshot of his present circumstances, what was going on in his life and what was going on in the world at that moment, and he ended up drawing some very wrong conclusions about the Lord. In Psalm 73, look in verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Whoa, what happened, Asaph? Verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Verse 4. For they, the wicked, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Asaph took a measurement of his own current situation and he decided from, from that little moment that he could somehow extrapolate everything that he needed to know about God and about God's care and concern for him, and how the universe is run, and whether everything is fair and just and right. And that tiny little snapshot, it led him to believe that, well, well, God didn't really seem to care for him. In fact, look at verse 13. In verse 13, Asaph says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean. All this effort that I've been doing to try to serve the Lord, it was all in vain. Wash my hands in it. There's no sense in me even trying to do all this stuff. Righteousness doesn't seem to really be paying off for me. Whereas for the wicked, hey, from the looks of it, they seem to be doing pretty good and pretty well off. That is until, verse 17, until I went to the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. You see, what Asaph needed to do was he needed to look past. He needed to look beyond this present moment. He needed to think more long term. And this morning what I'm saying to you is that when difficulties befall God's children, maybe a loved one passes away, maybe a son or a daughter leaves the Lord, maybe a job gets terminated and that creates strain financially, 
It is enormously tempting in that moment, in that moment when we are just so overwhelmed, so overwrought with those circumstances and emotions, it's so easy to take that snapshot and in that moment I'm going to now decide everything about God's care and God's love for me and I'm going to base all of that on that one miserable selfie that I just took. You know what Asaph would tell us? Asaph would tell us, don't do that. Don't do that. That is a very narrow and limited view. That is the devil trying to prevent you from thinking long term and seeing the big picture of things. Do you remember the story of Esther? Look in Esther chapter 4. It's just a little bit before the Psalms. In Esther chapter 4, during this moment of just terrible crisis in Esther and in her family and amongst the Jews, when it seemed like everything was just about to come crashing down. Do you remember what Mordecai, her uncle, comes and says to her? In Esther chapter 4, as Mordecai is trying to encourage Esther to, to go and to speak to the king and to try and, try and be proactive about heading this off of the pass, in Esther chapter 4 and in verse 14, he says, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I absolutely love Mordecai's view and outlook on things. Mordecai is determined to say, hey, I'm not going to take a snapshot of how grim things might appear right here and right now and come to the conclusion that, oh, God must not love us. God's forgotten about the Jews. God doesn't care about us anymore. No, Mordecai says, relief and deliverance, it will come. But I also love his realism when he says there in verse 14, Who knows? Who knows? We don't. We don't. We don't understand everything about God's providence. We don't understand everything about how God is working in the universe. We are not privy to His plans and to His counsel, which means that we cannot look at what is going on in our lives at this present minute right now and somehow make long-term decisions about God's love for us or about our relationship to Him. You stop and think about it. If you were to take a snapshot of the cross, man, that sure doesn't seem like God was winning there. In fact, you take a snapshot of the cross and you might be inclined to even question God's love for His only begotten Son. It looks like God doesn't care about him at all. And yet what happened at the cross, big picture, actually ended up being the greatest demonstration of God's love. I'll say once again, this is exactly why we cannot allow the devil to use our problems in the present moment to destroy us spiritually. But you know what? It's not enough for the devil to make accusations whenever we are down. What about when the devil says something about whenever we're really up and how we need to be really, really up? You know, how come, how come you're not on the mountaintop? You know, if you're not on this nonstop spiritual high, then hey, I think that means something's wrong with you. You're not really being the kind of Christian God wants you to be if you're just not constantly up, up, up all the time. Let's just grab one of the great mountaintop moments in the Bible. Look in Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9, I, when I say this is a mountaintop moment, I don't just mean that in the metaphorical sense. In Mark 9, I actually mean that literally. Because in Mark chapter 9, we're told about Jesus and about some of the apostles up on a mountain. In Mark chapter 9, look in verse 1. 
In Mark 9, and in, not verse 1, verse 2, Mark 9, verse 2, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. What's that like? What on earth is that like? That had to be one of the most amazing experiences for those three guys who got to see that. We know that for Peter, Peter never forgot that. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Decades after the fact, Peter's still talking about this event. Remembers it like it was just yesterday. He never forgot what it was like to be on that mountain that day with Jesus and Elijah and with Moses. Wow! Double wow! Now, you and I, we've never had a mountaintop moment like that. And I don't think we're going to have any kind of mountaintop experience that's even going to get close to that. But all of us have experienced spiritual highs before, haven't we? Think about, think about the day that you were baptized. That had to be one of, if not the, highest moment spiritually for all of us. That's a great day. Man, we're just on cloud nine when you obey the gospel. Or maybe when you taught someone else the gospel. You helped lead another person to Christ. It's not that we get credit for that in any way, but man... That, that, that lifts you up. Man, that's just exciting. It, it puts you on a high. Or what about maybe when you, you overcome a temptation? Hey, you are struggling with something, but, but you end up overcoming some sin. Man, that, that's a milestone moment. and We kind of get a lift out of that. Maybe it's when you prayed for something very fervently, and God answered and responded to that prayer positively. And it was very clear and obvious, God has answered this prayer. That's an awesome thing. And it just increases your level of faith in the Lord. Or what about maybe just being in a really great worship service? Where man, the singing was just awesome that day. And the preaching was on fire. And the talk at the Lord's table was just laser focused. And everything was just clicking that day. It was exceptional. And you left that day and you were so edified and so built up. Those kind of mountaintop experiences, they are a joy to us. We feel like we're on top of the world, and you know what? We're never coming down. But we do come down. Life is not all ups all of the time. And of course, it is when we come down that the devil sees to it that that is the perfect time to start leveling this kind of accusation. You know what? If you really were a Christian, then you wouldn't be down You wouldn't feel discouraged. Real Christians don't get discouraged. Christians don't have down days. No, no, no. Real Christians are up, up, up all of the time. Real Christians always feel victorious. Real Christians always feel triumphant. In fact, sometimes what happens is is we look around at other Christians and we see that, man, they, they are up. They are. They're kind of floating off the ground. They're on such a spiritual high all the time. And we get to looking at them and we get to thinking, why? I don't feel like he does. Why can't I have some of that? Is there something wrong with me? Maybe maybe I'm doing something wrong here. And you know what? The devil's going to be right there to say, there is something wrong with you. It is your fault. And once again, that, that bothers us. It eats at us. And maybe rightfully so, because maybe there is a measure of truth to that accusation. 
I think there is something to be said for not being slothful in zeal, but being fervent in spirit, as Romans 12 verse 11 says. And there is something to be said about examining ourselves for signs of of apathy and lukewarmness. Those are important ideas. We need to be doing that. But I would suggest to you that that is a far cry different from this thinking that the Christian life just delivers non-stop mountaintop experiences. That is not so. If that were so, then evidently the Apostle Paul didn't get the memo. In 2 Corinthians 1, please. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul just very candidly speaks about some of the valleys that he went through as a Christian. This is not Paul talking about you know when he was a sinner and living outside of Christ. No, this is Paul talking about this is what I felt and this is how I experienced as a Christian. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt like we had received the sentence of death. Paul was down. He was way down. And that's not the only time that he talks about those kinds of things. You keep reading through 2 Corinthians, you get to chapter 11. And Paul just catalogs a big long list of all of the hardships that he experienced, those experiences that were miles and miles away from anything closely akin to a spiritual mountaintop. Now, if an apostle of the Lord can be discouraged in that way, what makes you and I believe that we would ever be exempt from those same valleys? You know, can we just tell the truth about spiritual highs? They are great and they are wonderful. We love them and they are helpful to us. But listen to me. They are not permanent. This life was never intended to just be all up, up, up all of the time. That's later. That's what heaven is going to be for. This life, it has some peaks, but it also has some valleys. And that is the reality of living in a fallen world. And furthermore, thinking about those mountaintop experiences, those mountaintop experiences, those spiritual highs, they don't always lead to lasting change like we think they do. I'm thinking, for example, about Elijah and that battle that took place on the top of Mount Carmel. Elijah called down the fire from heaven. And not only did Elijah get excited, but everybody else got excited. All of Israel was, yes, yes, let's throw Baal under the bus and let's get serious about worshiping and serving God. And that lasted, mm, that lasted about as long until the fire got put out. It didn't stick. And what about Peter? Peter had that mountaintop experience there. The transfigured Christ. Did that make him a permanently fabulous Christian just floating on cloud nine, doing all the right things all of the time? He did not. We already read Galatians chapter 2. Peter failed. Don't misunderstand me. Going to the mountain, that's, that's good. And all of us can use some of those moments from time to time has a way of injecting some enthusiasm back into our Christianity, puts some pep in our step, gives us some perseverance whenever we do feel discouraged. But we cannot expect, and in fact God does not expect, that every day in Christ is going to be this amazing spiritual high. And so don't let the devil come along and convince you that you are somehow less of a Christian because you're not always up 
Or that just because you happen to be passing through some kind of a valley that, well, that's indicative that you've got some real serious spiritual problems. Those are the words that have a hiss to them because they are the words of the accuser. And we must not feed into his lies. Now I said I have a bonus before I closed. A bonus that would provide for us a surefire defense against these accusations and against the devil's assault. And I want to get that defense. And it's back in Revelation 12 where we began. Would you go back there once again? In Revelation chapter 12, whenever the devil begins to whisper in our ear about, about who we are, look at what you've done, and this is what you really are all about, and he tries to focus our attention on ourselves, it's very easy for us to buy in and to believe the accusations that he makes. Because the truth is, we know that we are weak. And we know that we do fail the Lord. But I'm going to suggest to you that the solution to that, whether those accusations are true and there's some merit to them, or whether those accusations are outright lies and completely false, the solution to that is exactly the same either way. The solution is always to look to Jesus. In Revelation 12 and in verse 10, where we read at the outset of the lesson, the accuser has been thrown down. He has been defeated. Well, how was he defeated? Verse 11, the very next verse. They have defeated him by the blood of the Lamb. We need to turn our eyes to the Lamb. We need to look to Jesus. If the devil's accusations have any measure of truth to them, then we turn to Jesus for the cleansing and the forgiveness and the strength that we need. And on the other hand, if the devil's accusations are filled with falsehood and lies, oh, you're not much of a Christian because of this or because of that, listen, we can't say to the devil, now devil, you're wrong, and the reason you're wrong is because I know how awesome I am. I know how good I am. I know how great I am. No, we look to the devil and we say, devil... I know how awesome and great and good Jesus is. And it is by His blood that I am what I am. When we are able to turn our eyes away from ourselves and then fix our gaze squarely on the Lamb of God, then the devil can come along and he can say whatever he wants. Because in Christ Jesus, we already know. We already know who's going to come out victorious of this deal when it's all said and done. And so on that note, we do extend heaven's invitation. And it is an invitation for anyone who has yet to come and to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Make no mistake about it, outside of Christ, the devil will make your life miserable. He will. In fact, he'll make you think that life is great and grand, but deep down inside you'll know it really isn't as great as he makes it seem. He will make your life miserable, and ultimately he will make your eternity miserable. And that's because his domain is the domain of darkness. This morning, though, you have the opportunity to come out of the domain of darkness and be transferred into the kingdom of Jesus' marvelous light. Can we help somebody today? to announce their faith in Jesus as the Son of God, that's called confession. To turn away from sin and turn to God, that's called repentance. 
and then be buried in water in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's called baptism. Can we help you today to become a Christian? God will add you to His family. And yeah, it's not always going to be gumdrops and rainbows and spiritual highs every day. But I'll tell you this, when you come up out of that water, it'll be a spiritual high like you've never felt before because you know that you are saved and you are in Christ. Can we help you today to take that critical step? Brother or sister, it may be that sin has crept back into your life. It may be that some of those accusations that the devil makes, that yeah, there there may be some truth to them. And you need to fix that. Self-examination causes us to realize where changes need to be made. If we can help you today to repent, to serve the Lord in a better way, pray with you and encourage you in any way that we can, whatever your need may be, you simply need to make that known. You can do that right now by coming to the front. Do that while we stand and while we sing.